I am so excited about where we're going today. And if you're new joining us, I just want to welcome you. My name is Brad, and I'm also one of the pastors here at B4 Church. Um, I'm excited about this week's message for a couple of different reasons. Um, first of all, the narrative that we're going to encounter today, the one that we're going to look at today, is actually one of my favorite narratives in the entire book of Acts. Uh, I don't know if we're allowed to have favorites, but if we are, uh, this is one of mine. And so I'm excited about that. But secondly, we're going to try something a little different today. Because we're using technology and because you're watching on video, we just had this idea a few weeks ago of what if we just wove some stories into this particular story that sort of mirrored what we were, what we were looking at today. And so today you're going to meet three different individuals who tell three stories that look like three stories that we're going to look at today. And so uh, I think this is going to be really great. I think it's going to be a great way for you to learn about this text and to see it in a real life context today. So uh, before we dive into that, I just want to say that um, whenever I look at this text, it reminds me of, of an essay that I got when I was in college. Um, there's a British philosopher, his name was Bertrand Russell, and Bertrand Russell wrote an essay that was called Why I'm Not a Christian. And uh, I remember being in college and, and reading this essay and having to, to unpack it and understand it and look at it. And, uh, and basically, it was his summary of why he could not believe the Christian faith. This is why he could not be a Christian. And, and the reason that I connect that with this text today, the reason I think of it is that when I look at this particular text, I see all of the reasons why I am a Christian. Uh, if you've been with us, you, you've been watching us walk through the book of Acts. And one of the undeniable sort of unbelievable aspects of this is that over and over again, like thousands of people in all sorts of different places with all sorts of different cultures and languages, people with all sorts of different backgrounds, they're making the decision to follow Jesus. They find him, they discover him, and then they choose to follow him. We're seeing it over and over again throughout the book of Acts. And despite what we commonly think, you know, a lot of times uh, we think that the world then was less complicated or those maybe it was easier to believe then than it is today. The reality is it was just as complicated then and the, the message of Jesus was just as outlandish for people then as it would be today. And yet Christianity, sounding outrageous, exploded all over the Roman Empire. And, and, and people believed with all of their lives. They gave their lives to, to the kingdom of God. Um, in fact, today we're going to be looking at a part of the story with these three different people, these three different indiv individuals who come to believe the message of Jesus. And the reason that I think of Russell in this is that as I see these three people believe, as I see the different ways that they enter into faith, it actually represents the reasons why I believe in the message of Jesus. In fact, I'm just going to say I'm titling this message today the opposite of, of Bertrand Russell's essay. This represents today why I am a Christian. In fact, um, before we dive in, I thought it might be interesting if we applied something that Bertrand Russell himself encouraged people to do uh, as we dive into this text. Uh, there was a, a BBC interview that he did in, in the late 1950s, and uh, he said this in this interview. He said, when you're studying any matter or considering any philosophy, ask yourself only, what are the facts? And what is the truth that the facts bear out? Never let yourself be diverted by what you wish to believe, but look only and surely at what are the facts. So today, we are going to look at the facts that exist in Acts chapter 16. And for those of us that are Christians, these facts, they may serve to fortify your faith. If you already believe the things that we're going to look at, the things you see, they may bolster your faith. They may remind you of things you've forgotten. They may encourage you in your faith. For those of you who have questions about faith and you're just exploring spirituality, these facts may answer questions that you've been asking. They may, they may resolve tensions that you've been feeling in your own life. 
So, so I just wanna encourage, no matter who you are, I believe there are facts to be seen here that will encourage you and inspire you in a variety of ways. So, so with that, I want you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 16. As you do that, I'm gonna offer just a little bit of background. Um, the, the year is AD 49 and uh, the apostle Paul and some companions, specifically a guy named Silas, they're on their second missionary journey. What's really interesting about this story is uh, Paul's second journey, he really sought out to go where he had gone on his first missionary journey. He thought, hey, we had good success talking about Jesus in these places. Let's go back to these particular places. But something really interesting happens in this story as as it begins. And I want to jump and start reading in verse six. It says, they went through the region of Phygria and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. I just want to pause here and say that they had this plan and very clearly the plan was forwarded. Like we don't know the details of this. We just know that for whatever reason, they got this sense from God's spirit. You're not going here. And so they thought they'd go here. And then God said, you're not going there. And so then they went to this other place. And then we read this in verse nine. While they're trying to figure out their direction, it says, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul has this dream, this guy, this individual at a place called Macedonia who's pleading with him. You can imagine him beckoning them and saying, come help us, help us. Uh, One of the things I think is really intriguing about this is that his plea for help, he he extends this and Paul immediately understands a plea for help is a a desire to understand the gospel. When people need help, what they really need is is the gospel. And so he has a response to this. Basically, if you need help, I can help you. We read on in verse 10, it says, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go out into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's the conclusion they drew. So setting sail from Troas, we made direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city for some days. Now, one of the things I love about this, and this is sort of a side note, is if you notice this, they don't actually stay in the first couple of places. They actually make an intentional effort to go to the city of Philippi. This is an intentional decision on Paul's part to go to the city of greatest influence, of greatest impact. He knew this region and he said, hey, if we're gonna tell people about the gospel in the place of Macedonia, we need to go to the place of the greatest cultural influence. And so he goes to that place. And it's here in the city of Philippi that we get introduced to three distinct people, three people who believe the unbelievable message of Jesus and they reveal why I am a Christian. They reveal the the foundation for why I believe. So so the first person, we, we meet him in verse 13, we meet her in verse 13, and it says this. It says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So this is our first person. Her name is Lydia. She's a worshiper of God. She's a seller of purple cloth. Um, Historians have sort of looked at her story. and, And one of the conclusions that we've drawn is that this is a woman who's educated. This is a woman who who was affluent. This was a woman who had influence. She had strength. This is a woman who probably owned her own business. Uh, She was successful in the world's eyes. That's who this woman Lydia is. And when you see what happens to her in this effort to, to pursue God, it reveals so much about how so many other people come to faith in Jesus. 
She's trying to find a system that will answer her questions. She's trying to find a way to make life make sense. And then she meets Paul and his companions in verse 14. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now I want you to pay attention to something that it says here. Very specifically, it says she paid attention to what was said by the apostle Paul. Essentially, there was a rational discourse that takes place. There were specific words that were spoken. There was the word that was spoken. And those words, the intellectual aspect of this is what led her into belief. And so right now we're gonna pause and I just want you to join me and I want you to watch with me as we hear the story of another person who made the decision to follow Jesus because of words, because of this sort of intellectual, rational discourse aspect of, of, of who God is. So right now, would you just join me and let's watch this story together. When we lost our son, Joey, Sue and I were angry with God and we were very confused. Well, I was a businessman at the prime of my career, doing really, really well. Uh, like a lot of other people in my position, I used to go to networking events. So when I was invited to a uh, prayer lunch, uh, I thought, sure, that, that I, I belong at one of those. So I went to those primarily for the purpose of networking. And I, got, and I sat at the table of the keynote speaker. We were in conversation, and at some point he figured out that I wasn't a believer, that I, uh, I believed in God, but that I didn't know Jesus and I didn't understand the word. And he began to press me a little bit in front of everyone, in fact. He, he made it very uncomfortable for me. He said something that just, it just shocked me, that if anyone would say this, he said, wow, he said, for someone who seems pretty bright, you are completely ignorant of the underpinning of Western culture in the Christian story. I was mad. I felt like he'd embarrassed me. Uh, he, he wounded my pride uh, because I was, I was waxing eloquent about history and all these things that I knew. And as he started to relate that to Christian things, he saw that I was off. And in that, I think he was just challenging me. He was asking me to reconsider my understanding of history through the Word of God. I went and bought a Bible and started to read it, not out of desire to read it, but out of a, a way of proving to this man who had humiliated me. Yeah, I read it so what? Um, that's not what happened. As, as I started to read it, uh, God began to become real to me. I began to hear his voice. And it was in his word that he opened up my heart. I began to uh, understand more about who he was. I, I saw the personality of God and I was shocked. I was not prepared for that. When Jesus would speak, I found myself as though I was standing with him, agreeing with him as he confronted religious hypocrisy. But the more I read, that conversation started to change and I began to recognize the hypocrisy in my life. And he was dealing with my spiritual poverty and I began to hear his voice. Well, once I started hearing his voice, I shared it with my wife, obviously, I wanted her to know. So one morning after reading the word, this was just the day that I really recognized I'm hearing the voice of God. I, I went downstairs and she was making coffee and I, put the Bible down and her back was to me making coffee. And I said, Sue, he's talking to me. And she didn't even turn around. She put her head up and said, who's talking to you? And I said, God, he's talking to me. And she said, oh, that's nice. Would you like some coffee? Gave me the coffee, walked out the door, went to her neighbor and said, my husband's going nuts. He thinks God's talking to him. 
I worked at home. I had a home office. I had my own business and I was literally uh, in my office and I, I, I couldn't concentrate on anything. So I opened up the word and started to read a little bit. And as I was reading, I, I started thinking, what are those commandments? I don't remember those 10 commandments. And I went back and found them in Exodus. And I had read the Bible recently, so I knew where they were. And I went and I read them again. And I was just cut to the quick because I recognized I'm a very broken, sinful man. And I need Jesus. And I, I'd seen a Billy Graham thing or two, and I knew there's a point at which you actually say something. So at that very moment, I got on my knees in my office. For some reason or other, there were no phone calls for about three hours during this whole process. God kept everything away because he was working with me. I got on my knees and I just gave my life to him. And I was just overwhelmed with a sense of his love and comfort. It was almost as though this, it was almost like I felt the pressure, the good pressure from heaven just poured out over me. It was as though you finally got home from a very horrible, difficult, challenging journey. And you were in the finally, you were in the safe place and you could finally let down and cry. You know, I love Mark's story because it looks so much like the story of Lydia, that there was this interaction with an individual, there was words, there was an intellectual challenge, and then God, through those words, began to meet Mark in that place. And it really reveals something very significant I think we need to understand about the gospel, and that's this. The gospel gives words that answer the questions that we're asking. It's that simple. The gospel gives words that answer the questions that we're asking. It resolves those things that are deep in our hearts. And so that's the first thing we see in this narrative. But then in the next part of this, we meet a different person, a very different person with very different experiences. And we see a different aspect of the gospel with this. So I want you to keep reading with me in verse 16. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, going back to the place where they had met Lydia, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So now we have this slave girl. She, she couldn't be at the, any further at the other end of the spectrum from Lydia. She is poor. She's a slave. She, she's being controlled by men who are profiting from her. You can think of a translation for her, her life in our culture today. She's being exploited. And I want you to notice something. She has the right words. She's proclaiming the truth, the very words spoken to Lydia, and they do nothing to change her. She's literally walking around saying, these men are actually proclaiming salvation. These are men who represent the, the most high God, and yet she's unchanged by those words. So then we read this in verse, 10, it's verse 18. It says, and this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, I actually love that part of the narrative, he turned and said to the Spirit, to the spirit I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. She's delivered. She's liberated. And, and, and not, just, not just from this possession, from this demon, but she's liberated from her exploitation. And, and it's not a dialogue that does this. It wasn't like somebody rationally engaged her and suddenly she was free. It was a powerful encounter with the Spirit of God. That's what changes her. Something was done to her. Something was done for her. And as a result of that, She's delivered. And, and interestingly enough, 
we see similarities between her story and so many stories in our culture today. In fact, the next one I want you to watch is, is my friend Joe. I just want you to hear his story and look at the parallels between this slave girl and Joe's experience. Would, would you watch this one with me? I think my impression of God was that God was a lot like my earthly dad, that he left me, that he wasn't near, that he was far away, that he was harsh, that he was someone that just, I don't know, didn't love me, didn't accept me, didn't want me, didn't feel that place of belonging. And so I had a, I had a warped perception of God from a bit as a young boy. And so it was hard to overcome that. And just even in the, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my unforgiveness, my anger, my bitterness, I, I just viewed God as a God that takes and not a God that gives. Skateboarding was interesting to me because once I locked my eyes on that vision of turning pro, there was something in me, and I probably didn't know how to verbalize it, that I thought once I arrived, uh, then a lot of the pain and a lot of my confusion and a lot of my unfulfillment and things would go away. Like there, my life would change and it would get a lot, lot better. And so, and, and when that happened, it didn't. It was like a mirage. But there was some sort of a spiritual longing and a spiritual ache that was a lot deeper than anything in this world, including skateboarding, which was the love of my life, uh, could supply or could fulfill. And so it left me bankrupt to a certain extent. I remember sitting in my home at one point in my apartment and I was, I was on drugs. I took two hits of acid and my eyes were opened up to the spiritual realm or I had a bad trip or a little bit of both. And I was being tormented by what I saw were demons. And in that moment it lasted, just felt like it lasted forever. And, and there, in, in, in that moment of torture, there, there came a, a voice and it was his voice. And it was just this one moment of clarity. And what he said is that he, he questioned me. God questioned me and asked me and just said, um, what does it look like that you're, how you manage your own life? And I just, I just remember thinking about that. And I looked at, and I just surveyed my life and I saw the results of doing things my way. I saw that the way that I was living my life was very destructive, to not only to me personally, but to those around me. And in that moment, I, I surrendered my life to Jesus, and, and my life has never been the same. Joe's story looks so much like this, this slave girl, and, and, and the way the gospel impacted him is so radical. In fact, the gospel, the second thing I want you to understand is not only does the gospel give words to people, but the gospel also transforms lives. The gospel radically transforms lives. It changes people. It changes their story. It changes their trajectory. It, 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 it radically moves the, 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 the horizon for them and everything looks different because of the gospel. So, so whether it's the slave girl or whether it's my buddy Joe, that's how a lot of people meet Jesus. You, you can talk to your blue in the face. You can be rational with them all you want, but it's not until they have a powerful encounter with God that they come to faith. So that's the second thing that we see here. 
But then this story takes a really interesting turn. Um, because the slave girl is liberated, because she no longer has this demon, uh, now there's a bunch of people who were invested in her financially. And so, um, so they get really upset because they can't make money off of her. And they start an uprising in the city because this injustice that has now been resolved actually results in the revelation of the idolatry that money has in these people's hearts and lives. In fact, maybe you look at this story and you think, well, why would anybody be upset with this? Like people are getting words that they're longing for. People are being liberated from lives of bondage. But here's the reality. When you mess with people's economy, you mess with their idolatry. So, so I want you to see what happens next. In verse 22, it says, the crowd joined in attacking them. They started attacking Paul and Silas and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they'd inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And this is the third person we meet in Acts chapter 16, the jailer. He doesn't want to discourse. He doesn't want to talk about the words that were shared with Lydia. He doesn't want to, to, to hear about the power encounter. He knows that this slave girl was liberated, but he's really unchanged by any of these things. The, the jailer is just a regular guy. He's got a good job. He's got a decent family. He's just sort of moving through his life and, and it's kind of on cruise control and he doesn't need any of this other stuff that's going on, right? He just has a job to do. But I want you to see what happens to him. Verse 25, it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and they were singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, little side note here. I just want to pause and say that I think most Christians, especially in America today, I think if they found themselves in this situation where they had been uh, unjustly imprisoned, where they found themselves accused and beaten for no good reason, are praying in the middle of the night, worshiping God, and there's an earthquake that opens the doors and the chains fall off, most people would say, well, God saved me, right? God liberated me. God, God's setting me free. I prayed, I praised God, I worshiped him and this injustice is undone and here the doors are open and we're gonna run out. But what are the consequences for this man? Well, for this man, it meant that he would lose his life. And actually, because he's a man of honor, he's choosing to do the honorable thing and take his own life. If these prisoners escape, he's a dead man. Anyways, I might as well just do this thing because I've, I've not done my job. But what happens next is actually what changes him. Paul and Silas, they don't see this earthquake as an answer to their prayers or their faithfulness. They don't see God even releasing them. They see God saving the jailer. Listen to verse 28. It says, Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. They didn't run out. And this blows his mind. Every conception he has of humanity, this just changes. Like, why would you do this? He'd not taken care of them. He'd participated in the injustice. Why would these individuals stay here? And then this guy responds with one of the most iconic statements in all of the book of Acts. It's actually really famous sort of in church history. He says something and it doesn't come after someone's preached a great sermon. I hate to say that to myself. Uh, he doesn't say that after somebody's been delivered powerfully. He says this, he says in verse 29, the jailer called for the lights and he rushed in and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? No sermon, no one got healed. 
but he saw something. He saw something. He saw the gospel being lived out in such a way that he said, I need that. Like My life doesn't have that. You could talk to me rationally. You could tell me about healings. That stuff doesn't change me, but I see something in you that's different than what I see in me. And now I want you to hear the story of a modern day jailer who's had a similar experience. So would you just watch this one with me? Before my divorce, my wife was my foundation. She and my daughter were that, that foundation. And when that was taken away, then, you know, it was, it was very painful. The way I dealt with that was more like, kind of like shut down a little bit and then just try to work it out, um, just physically. I remember Eric inviting me to basketball and uh, just, it was a great opportunity for, for, for me to get connected. Uh, I met a lot of people in the community here in the church. Um, lots of people were, were there to welcome me and they basically had a lot of opportunities to talk to me about the gospel and, and help me in, in a lot of ways. And one of the things about Eric is that he, um, he kind of carries his heart in his sleeve, you know, a lot, a lot of times. <laughs> Way better person than I am. The, the relationship that I saw James, Eric, Peter, and Tong, you know, they have with each other, with the, the relationship that, that they have with Jesus. Um, I knew that that's something I also wanted. So I wanted to experience that. They shared their stories with me and and made made a, a greater impact. And I realized looking back at, you know, going through my divorce, even probably that with that relationship was, maybe it was missing like a good, solid foundation. So Pastor Janet and Pastor Harry, they were the, the ones that encouraged me to build my foundation on Jesus. And I was looking for something and they definitely, it's like, you know, Jesus is the one that, uh, you know, he, he, he cares for you, he loves you. And um, you just need to, uh, you know, have a relationship with him. It's like, I want that. I do believe that Jesus is that relationship that you can build your life on. And uh, if, if, you, if, you, if you build that up before you build other relationships, that will help you. And that's what I, one of the things that I learned, you know, either in relationships, either, you know, marriage or is it with friends or with family. If you have the foundation, you know, Jesus being the foundation, you, know, you will not be shaken. You might be, you might be um, stir a little bit, but you won't be, you know, broken like, like I was before, you know, like my other people go through before they find who he, who he really is. You know, what changes us oftentimes is what we see in other people. And what brings us to the gospel is the example of it being lived out in a practical way. Um, through this, you know, we, we discover something. That the gospel shows us that, that life is more meaningful than the one that we are currently living. That's what the gospel reveals to us. When we encounter the gospel, it actually says there's more to this life than just getting a paycheck and showing up to work on time. There's more to this life than just sort of going through your days and counting them off. Like there's something meaningful in this life. That's what the gospel does. And when I look at these three stories and I see them all lined up in Acts chapter 16, truly it's just what reminds me of why I'm a Christian. Because the gospel does this. The gospel offers words that make sense of this world. It offers power that makes a difference in this world. And it offers a life that is unique in this world. That's what the gospel does. That's it. That's why I'm a Christian, because I look at these things. And so I just want to, I want to challenge you with this. I want you to think about this today. Do you allow the words of the gospel, do you allow the truth of the gospel to have the authority, to have the relevance, to have the impact in your life that they, that they could potentially have? 
Do do you allow those words to define your world? Do you let those words, the words of the gospel, make sense of your world? Or do you use cultural narratives? Do you use other storylines? But Or do you let the gospel be the defining narrative for your life? And then do you, do you experience transformation? Is your life a life that's being transformed? Are you being changed? Is there something about you that looks like the power of God is at work in you? Are you trusting God with things that need to be changed in your life? Is there a difference that's being made in you? And then finally, is your life unique? Is there anything about the way you're living life, the way you're moving through life that would cause somebody else to stop and look and say, you know what, I like what I see in you or I like what I see in you. I, I, I wanna know more about who you are. Is there any aspect of who you are that's, that's living that particular way? Um, we're gonna close with some worship and I'm gonna offer a benediction in just a moment. But as we, as we go to worship, I just, I wanna remind you of something that Jesus said in, in a conversation with his disciples. Um, one day he was talking and he just said this. He said, you you are the light of the world. In a a dark world, in a world that's full of brokenness and, and pain and heartache, he said, you are the light of the world. And I truly believe, and I want you to hear me say this today, that you are a light in the sense that you have words that God has given you to speak over people. You have words of life, words of truth that you can offer people that will answer the questions that they're asking. The gospel has given you words that redefine the world around you. You have power to make a difference in the name of Jesus in other people's lives. You are a light because God has given you power and you are a light because you can live a different kind of life. You can live a unique life and the way that you carry yourself, the way that you move through your days, the way that you live as a contrast community, the way that you live as a contradiction to the way culture lives, that is a light to a watching world. And so I wanna challenge you as we close. Would you allow the words of the gospel? Would you allow the power of the gospel? Would you allow the life of the gospel to rest on you during this time of worship? Let's worship together.
You know, one of the reasons that we chose to show you these stories alongside of the biblical narrative is to remind you and to show you that this stuff that we're talking about isn't stuck someplace in history. This is happening right here. This is happening right now. And so I truly believe that if you're watching this, there's a good possibility that you have a variety of things that you're rolling around in your mind. You're trying to figure out what the truth is. You're trying to figure out what, what right is. You're trying to figure out which side is up and which side is down. And let me just tell you this, you can trust that the gospel is gonna speak the words to you that are true and right. And so whatever it is you're wrestling with, would you allow the gospel to have authority? Would you allow the words of Jesus to have authority over all those other things? Some of you, you're watching this and, and, and undoubtedly uh, you're, you're wrestling with things that, that you need to be delivered from. There's power in the name of Jesus. You don't have to white knuckle it. You don't have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You literally can be delivered by the powerful name of Jesus. And I know there's others of you that you're kind of going through the motions and you're living life, but you feel like you're only three quarters or maybe halfway alive. And today what you've seen is the difference between people who are truly alive and people who are just sort of going through the motions. And that difference is Jesus. And so I encourage you, if you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never said, what does it take for me to be saved? I wanna encourage you to ask that question and hear Jesus say, follow me. So as we close this, let me offer this to you. May you be men and women, no matter where you are, no matter what you're experiencing, may you be men and women who see the gospel in every aspect of what it is. And may these things be why you are a Christian. We love you guys. Have an amazing week and we will see you later.